Welcome to the Next Level Communications podcast, the show that explores how to have more meaningful conversations and make real connections in business and in life. I'm your host, Eloise Leeson, founder of Olin, a Next Level Communication Consultancy. As a linguist, I'm passionate about helping people improve their ability to communicate. And on the show, we'll be discussing ideas and strategies to help you close the gap between what you think you're saying and what is actually being received by your customers. Effective communication takes empathy, self-awareness, and a commitment to seeing things from another person's perspective. My goal with this show is to get you talking about talking, thinking about brand, considering your language, and most importantly, focusing on that other person. Communication is at the heart of all relationships. My hope is that this show will help you nurture your connections through more conscious, impactful conversations. I am so glad that you are here. Hello and welcome back to the Next Level Communications podcast with me, Eloise Leeson-Smith. I hope you are doing so well, you gorgeous creature. Are you having the best day? I really hope you are. And if you're having a terrible day, I really hope it gets better. I have heard that chocolate buttons are the best way. They're certainly my go-to way if you're having a slightly shady day. Chocolate buttons from the fridge, because we're not heathens, from the fridge, then I feel better. I promise you. Um, So last week we did, we deviated a little bit from our usual course of uh, an episode and we got into the realms of branding and brand questions. And really that all has to start with self-awareness. I can't think of any instances where brands have been successful when the people that have built them have not been aware of themselves or the people around them. So I guess that's, let's maybe let that be a cautionary tale to the people that are doing brands really badly. Um, So this week's episode is all about how fabulous you are that you did last week's episode. And I know you have, I know you sat down at your table with a cup of coffee and a pen, probably a really great like highlighter 0.38 Muji gel pen. And you sat there with your lined or your gridded notebook and you wrote down all the answers to all the questions that I asked you and you played them back and you were very proud of yourself. Um, and if you haven't done that, I would thoroughly recommend doing that before you get to this episode. However, if you have done it or you've done a similar branding exercise, This is the episode where we talk about practical, practically, how do we start to put that into practice across the board? So let's have a little think about what a brand needs to be for people to want to share it with other people. It has to be inspiring. It has to be engaging. It has to be accessible and it has to be meaningful. And all of these qualities are things that help people connect and engage and attach themselves to the meanings of the the values themselves and the the organizational mission and vision. If you can't make what you're doing meaningful for people, yeah, you're just in a really sticky situation. If your employees aren't enthused about your brand, why the hell would your customers be? And if it isn't, then all you're doing is seeming good and not actually being good. And I think from the very get-go of this podcast season, I have been fairly strident about my opinions about that. And as it's my podcast, I get to be, so there you go. Um, But what I I really want to talk to everybody today about is a concept in linguistics called sociolects. So settle in, grab a cup of coffee, um, and let's have a talk about talking. I know we raised this concept in our last episode, but I really want us to think about how we create um, belonging as an organisation. And the reason that I'm focusing on your organisation internally in this episode is because once you get that company-wide buy-in, making your brand consistent across all channels becomes a hell of a lot easier. So let me ask you a random question. 
what did you call the TV remote whilst you were growing up? Now, I know for some people, they're like, Eloise, you've actually lost your marbles. What do you mean? I mean, what did you call the TV remote whilst you were growing up? Now, some of you might be giving me blank faces at the moment. That's totally fine. But some of you might be thinking, well, I, well, in my house, we called it the clicker. Uh, or in my house, we called it the thingamajig or the doofer. I have heard some crackers over the years. And we have had, like I said, thingamajig, clicker, doofer. One of my favourite recent ones that I've heard is the twiddler. I love that. Um, and then there was the zapper. The Frank, as in Frank Zappa, high five to that family. Um, and then in my house, we called it the squiggly box. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I went to a friend's house and I asked for the squiggly box, I was met with some fairly strange looks from the people that I was with. And I realised in my, my sort of young brain, it wasn't obviously, oh my gosh, socio-elect, how interesting. I was like, oh, I'm a bit of a weirdo. Someone else has called this something different. I feel like a bit of an outsider. And this is a very, very broad explanation. It's really a gross over sort of generalisation of the term. But in many ways, I find it easy to explain sociolects as a social dialect. So a dialect, as I'm sure most of us know, is a regional variation of a broader parent language. So you could argue that um, you obviously have Scots as a language, but then you will have, um, so Glaswegian is going to be a dialect of Scots. I'm sure many of the Glaswegians that are possibly listening to this would disagree and say Glaswegian's a language, and I'm sure you're right. But in the same way that Doric in Aberdeen is a regional dialect, it's spoken in a very specific geographical location. There are a number of words in Doric, like chuchter, meaning someone from the country, or quine or quiney, meaning woman or girl. There's a whole variety of fabulous words. And Scots is a very interesting language, actually, to look at in general. Um, definitely one of the more descriptive languages I have ever had the privilege of coming across. But those are markers that indicate that you're from a certain place. When you transpose that idea to uh, the idea of social settings or groups of belonging, like families or friends or school groups, we start to find that a sociolect crops up in much the same way. It's a social variation of a regional language. So when I use the word squiggly box, I was using it outside of the context of my family. I wasn't using it in the context of belonging that I had grown up in. And that's why things like in-jokes are profoundly difficult to explain to people who weren't there. They just don't land as well because the in-joke occurred at a moment where you were, you were re-knitting the bonds of your relationships through shared experiences. And that is what makes language so fascinating and so beautiful. And there's obviously a huge amount more. If anybody's interested in researching it, I would thoroughly recommend doing a little Google on sociolects um, because it is such an interesting way that we as human beings want to make sure we we identify people in speech um, for, you know, are you safe? Do I know you? Are you from around here? It's why we pick up on things. It's like heuristics. I think I mentioned that in the third or maybe the second episode. The idea that we're gathering and assimilating information about each other all the time and using lots of different clues to help us work out if this person is a friend or a foe. Um, so sociolects, the next time you are interested in meeting someone, it's a cracking icebreaker. Although I did hear the other day that if someone asks you to do an icebreaker, it is your job to make them regret it. Uh, so I am team regretful icebreaker. But I do think it's fascinating. If anybody would like to email in with what you called the uh, the TV remote when you were growing up, I would be so thrilled to hear what it was, especially if it was something different to some of the things that I've mentioned now. Um, but as for me in the squiggly box, it was one of those moments where I realised very quickly that not everybody used the same words that I do. And there's there's nothing there that's wrong. You know, there's nothing there that says, um, you know, this person is a stranger to me. Although there is, I'm sure there's questions somewhere around sibboleth and shibboleth, which is... I, 
possibly the word for chickpea. More on that later. Um, and it was literally used for armies to tell each other apart because it was one of the words they used in the dialects where they were fighting in the Civil War moment. So that is a fun mem- memory from my first year of university, uh, possibly lost to the mists of time. But when we're thinking about sociolects in a workplace, what on earth do they have to do with branding? What do they have to do with your teams? What do they have to do with any of the stuff that we've talked about this season? Well, I'm glad that you asked that rhetorical question that I asked myself, slightly self-referential. But when it comes to creating meaning or belonging as a community, workplaces are doing it all the time. We're all doing it all the time. We're all looking for ways to make things meaningful with each other, to show each other that we belong in certain groups. And that can be conscious or unconscious. And I suppose the reason that it's so important to talk about in branding is that if you don't take the time to make your words mean something collectively, they're going to wind up meaning all sorts of different things for all sorts of different people who could feel very left behind by what you're deciding certain words mean. I had the enormous pleasure of meeting um, Phil Lewis. Phil, if you are listening, this one is for you. Phil Lewis, one of the founders of a brilliant uh, group called Corporate Punk, and he had shared a book with me in which the author talks about um, words that are really a cause of reversification. So we use the term alignment. Alignment does not mean alignment. Alignment means I have browbeaten you into absolute and total subservience um, and you will cooperate with my plan or else. That is not what alignment means. Um, More broadly in linguistics, we would refer to that as a contronym, something that is its own opposite. So an opposite is obviously an antonym. Um, A synonym is a word that I'm sure we've all looked up synonyms in the past. What's a synonym of big? Uh, What's a synonym of synergistic management solutions? Um, but, But when we come to the opposites of things, that's what's known as an antonym. A word that is its own opposite, which a great example is the word cleave, which means both to cling to and to cut to adhere to and to separate, um, you have something called a contronym. So with this sort of in mind, when we're talking about the words that we sling around the workplace on a daily basis, now hands up if you despise jargon in most of its forms, I am throwing both my hands in the air as we speak. Um, But if you despise jargon, then you will probably also find words like alignment, synergistic, automated, integrated, Um, these are all really becoming quite meaningless. They are bandied around so much that they either are too complex for us to understand because of the context that we're using them in, or they have absolutely no substance to them whatsoever. So when you talk about client success, cool, you and everybody else, what does client success really mean to you as an organisation? And this is why the brand workshop results from the questions that we asked last week are so powerful when it comes to getting a team on side. So you might have decided that your personal values are um, care and creativity, curiosity, freedom and flexibility. That all sounds fabulous on paper. High five to you. But until you dig into what creativity means for you on a daily basis, you are never going to be able to articulate it to other people. And it's really important to put some substance and some meat behind the value. Otherwise, like so many of the values out there, it just becomes empty air. It means nothing to you or to anybody else. And frankly, you are entirely too awesome and fabulous and have way too much to do to let yourself be held back by values that haven't been fleshed out. So let's both agree right now, pinky swear, we ain't going to do that. So 
let's talk about one of my most brilliant clients lately. Absolutely fabulous client. John and team, if you're listening to this, this one, like Phil, this one is for you. Um, But I want to talk about the word prosperity. So this incredible firm that I'm working with at the moment have identified that one of their core values is prosperity. Now, you might be thinking, oh, prosperity, that's cool. That's like, that means more money in my bank account, right? That means trips to, you know, Santa Fe and margaritas and nice times in the Mesa. Um, I'm definitely speaking from personal preference here. But prosperity to this firm means so much more than financial wealth. Prosperity means freedom. It means freedom of time and money. It's freedom from worrying that your tax bill is going to be so high you can't foot it. It means knowing that you've got not just enough for a rainy day, but if Noah came back with his ark for 40 days and nights, you'd be just fine, pal. It's about having more creative brain space back so that you can think strategically about what happens with my business in the next three to five years. You've got a partner for growth. You know, it's prosperity for the community. It's it's intergenerational wealth. It's supporting people and upskilling them. It's giving them room to flourish and thrive. And that team created that meaning. They made prosperity meaningful when they sat down in their room and talked in the meeting room and talked to each other about their personal experiences and understanding. They were building and and, and embroidering this really beautiful sociolect. They were creating a term of belonging. And for me, when it comes to branding, that is one of the most exciting things you can get your teams doing. Get people involved from the very beginning. The reason that brands don't land with companies is that they get enforced. A brand should never be enforced. It should be something that is so inspiring and creative and collegiate and welcoming in its approach that people feel that they can own a part of it. You know, you find a way to explain success, for example, as a term that resonates with everybody. And there are going to be a whole variety of different interpretations of that word success, which is why it's really important that you understand, first of all, how your organization is perceived from the inside out. So here will be, if anybody wants to hit me up for this research, I will come in and do it for you for free. And I do mean that there will be like the first come first serve, the first person that gets in touch to say, hey, I would like you to come in and do this research with my team. I will be there like a little shot out a rocket. How do your people perceive your values as they truly are from inside an organization? And if you don't think there's a disconnect there, may I refer you to the numbers from episode one? Eight percent of people are engaged. That's it in the British workforce. What about the 92 percent that are completely detached from your mission, your vision and your values? If you don't want me to come and do that research, that's just fine. But you will get along super well with all of the other ostriches that are hanging around. The point is, is that meaning is something we get to make together. It's not something that just needs to sit with a senior leadership team and then gets passed around and lives in a drawer for three years because you didn't take the time to involve the rest of your workforce in it. Now, I'm not saying if you have an organization of up to 500 people that you've got to get all those 500 people in a room. No, that is called death by committee. But what you do have to have is a way of making your brand meaningful for your managers and for the people that are responsible for sharing that with other people in their teams. So how do you do that? You ask them and you make the time for them to ask you questions. You share with them why you've chosen this particular approach. You've shared with them the fact that all of a sudden prosperity doesn't mean financial wealth anymore. It means sharing all the good stuff that life should be in business and making more of that available for more people. That's what it means. So when you get down to it, what you're essentially doing is widening the access to this this social dialect, this language of belonging. 
So the best way to do it is when you when you are doing those brand values and you are doing that brand value creation is to do that not just as one person or to get an agency to come in and, you know, prescribe things for you, but to think really long and hard about what is it that we want to be known for here as a company and as a business? What do we want that legacy to be? Remember that question from last week. What do we want our legacy to be? as we move forward? How can we make this tangible and meaningful to other people? And obviously, this is just the very, very tip, tippy tip tip of the iceberg in terms of scratching the surface. And then once you start from here, and you do start to decide to live by your values, that's when you need your internal comms folks to come in and help you create a beautiful plan for that behavior change inside the organization. But again, words like behavior change, transformation, complex change, they'll give everybody the heebies and with really good reason. This is why plain English in business is so important. But what's more important is to be aware that sometimes your brand values are not just written on a piece of paper. They are powerful, fiery, lived experiences. And so you're going to have to take them off paper for people to really appreciate them for what they are. You're going to have to have those conversations about them. You're going to have to invite people's opinions. You're going to have to be really transparent about the results of any research you do internally. If you really want to be known as a company that lives its brand values and doesn't just pay them lip service, you've got to actually do the work. And maybe that sounds super counterintuitive and you're sat there going, yeah, I know. But hey, if it was that easy, wouldn't everybody else be doing it? And the reason that it's it's so important to do is because the extra mile is never crowded. If you do this work and you bring your brand values to life in a way that gets all of your people on side and included, first of all, it's a great way of making sure that if anybody isn't jiving with this, they probably shouldn't be in your business. Are they adding value? Would you be happy with that individual as a manager? If not, it might be the time to very gently suggest a career move for them. But it also becomes the most powerful onboarding document it becomes a language of immediate welcome that says, hey, first of all, thrilled that you are part of our team now. You're on our team and we're going to take care of you. But here are the ways that we we do that. This is what we value and this is what it means. And it means this because we got into a room together and we spoke about the meanings and we realized that based on research from our company and based on our designs and our goals and our, stretch, our strategy and our strategic objectives, this is what we want to be known for as a company. And the fact that you're here means that you're part of that vision too. So here's how we talk about prosperity. This is what it means for us. This is what it means to really care about someone. This is how all of our values weave in one into the other so that we are living something that supports itself every single day. And okay, yeah, sure. I absolutely have my Pollyanna hat on right now. But frankly, if you want to have that competitive edge, you want to be known as a brand that lives its values, you gotta gotta get a bit Pollyanna. You've got to go and do the stuff that makes you feel a bit cringe. And I guarantee that you won't, you, you will be in a very rare and precious minority that does it. So I hope that this has been interesting and given you some food for thought. There are obviously lots of strategic conversations that are so unique to every organization that it wouldn't make a lot of sense to share a broad brushstroke strategy with you now. But start with that research piece. Start by making meaning together in an organization. Start by thinking about what is our language of belonging here as a company? What can we do to make people feel welcome into that from the get go? I mean, a really lovely, very minor example is a dear friend of mine, Marcus Hemsley, uh, who runs the Fountain Partnership Agency. Uh, The people that work for Fountain are called Fountaineers, which is a bit like Mountaineer, but for fountains. And I just think it's a lovely term that you can say, oh yeah, we are the Fountaineers and this is what we do. But that is an immediate term of socioelect. It won't mean potentially much to people outside the agency and their clients and their kind of, you know, commercial spheres. But for them, it's something to be proud of. So I'm going to leave you with that example. If you have any questions, theories, queries, all of the above, you know where to find me. And I hope this has been really valuable and I will speak to you soon.